All right. So I guess what we'll go ahead and do is we'll go ahead and get started. So welcome everyone to this uh, week's edition of uh, CRE 101. Uh, for, if this is your first time tuning in, uh, really, this is a group that we, we started this, last, this past year to really be the go-to resource for everything commercial real estate related or interest. If anyone's interested in learning about the many facets of commercial real estate, we really just want to become that go-to resource. And today's no exception. I mean, we have Chad Griffith, who's a partner in NAI, um, who's a commercial real estate brokerage. Uh, I think they're, they're, they're in, in Edmonton, uh, Canada, and he specializes in industrial and I'm assuming also office real estate. You, you do have your SIOR designation, which is a designation for those uh, property types. Um, and we're really excited to have him because I know he's going to be able to provide a ton of valuable insights uh, to the group. So welcome, Chad. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, so much for having me on. Excited to be here. Oh yeah, man. No, I, I mean, and, and also if you guys haven't already, Chad does have a YouTube channel that, that where they have phenomenal, phenomenal information uh, about industrial real estate. So definitely worth, worth checking out. But as far as uh, when we first start out in these types of, of meetings, what we would like to do is learn a little bit more about uh, the individual that, that's coming on. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about your background, uh, what got you into commercial real estate and in particular in industrial real estate. Yeah, it's a great question. So I was actually working at a restaurant as I was going through college when I was uh, 20. I got promoted to a manager position and decided to drop out of college to do that. Uh, did that for about a year or two and, and really found that I couldn't see myself doing that forever. So uh, I was investing in real estate with some friends of mine. We had bought and sold a house or two and kind of got an itch for real estate in general. So I found my way into residential real estate. This goes back 16 years or, or so now. I did that for a year and quickly discovered that uh, uh, commercial real estate was a, a lot more attractive. So I uh, reached out to my uncle, who was an architect in town. Uh, he put me in touch with a few different brokerages. I uh, ended up settling on NAI, which uh, I've been there for 15 years now. Uh, I've been there for 15 years. I became a partner in 2014. Uh, and then I started investing in industrial real estate myself uh, in 2015. Awesome. That's, that's, that's a unique experience. And I've definitely heard a lot of people that have started out in the residential space that have kind of transitioned into commercial real estate. I actually was in software before I was an engineer and then got it into commercial real estate. So that's one of the cool things about commercial real estate in general is that you kind of get people from all over the place that dive into it. So that's awesome. There's very few people that grow up as kids that decide they want to be a commercial real estate broker when they're older. <laughs> exactly. Definitely. All right. So you've, you've, we've, we've kind of talked about, and really the purpose of this meeting is to discuss industrial real estate. Could you give us like a high level overview of exactly what you mean by industrial real estate? That's a great uh, question because I, I think that there is a lot of misconceptions about industrial real estate in general. Uh, it, you hear it in the news about industrial real estate doing really well, or it's, it's doing poor in other areas. And I think it's, it's imperative that you actually delineate industrial real estate into a few subcategories to get a, a really good picture of what industrial real estate is. So I, I would break industrial real estate into three subcategories. You'd have manufacturing properties, uh, warehousing properties, and then flex properties. So manufacturing is exactly as the name implies. Anything that's being made inside of these, inside of these properties. It can be light manufacturing, uh, assembling computer parts, or it could be heavy manufacturing, uh, like a machine shop or a welding shop. So anything that's assembly, manufacturing, that's a distinct subcategory of industrial. Then you've got the other warehouse, which has been uh, other uh, subcategory of industrial, which has been in the news a lot, and that's warehousing. 
So those are all the big logistics centers. Uh, our market just had a 1 million square foot Amazon facility come in as an example. That's just a pure warehousing building. Uh, those are the ones that most people are probably familiar with as of late, because that's getting all the news uh, headlines with e-commerce and last mile delivery. There's a lot of buzzwords tied to that segment of industrial real estate right now. And then the catch-all last category that I'd group everything into would just be flex properties. So those are the properties that, that could cater to a number of different uses, could be self-storage, uh, could just be a, a mix of manufacturing and distribution. That's kind of a catch-all for all the properties that aren't warehousing or manufacturing. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I agree with you in that sense that it, 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 it's important to specify exactly what you mean by industrial real estate, because like you said, there's various different subcategories that industrial real estate falls into. So thank you again for care, uh, for characterizing each one. So now that you kind of understand the, the different, I guess, subcategories, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on some of the pros and cons of, of each and maybe why someone would be interested in, in one category over the other? Yeah, so to, to add on to that, and I appreciate you uh, pulling more information on this, because I think it is important to stress that having a, an understanding of the different subcategories of industrial is actually really important if you're, if you're going to be working in the space or investing in it, uh, because th there's different trends that happen with all those. So I, I live in a market that has heavy oil and gas uh, uh, exposure. So as you could appreciate, that manufacturing side of industrial real estate has actually had some downward pressure on it for the better part of five or six years now. Whereas warehousing has actually uh, gone through a bit of a boom with all the e-commerce and, and people looking for distribution space. So I, I think that there's always going to be those pros and cons, but it's going to, it's going to ride a microeconomic as well as a macroeconomic uh, trend, depending on what's happening in the market. Uh, I, I imagine that markets in Texas or, or some of the shale oil plays that you guys have in the U.S. would also be experiencing similar types of trends where there's probably that downward pressure on anything related to oil and gas and that segment of the manufacturing side. But I would also uh, speculate that in all the major cities across North America, they're all seeing a warehouse boom. So I, I think the biggest thing an investor can do right now is make sure you have a firm understanding of exactly what the property is and what it isn't. There's still a market for manufacturing. I, I actually just bought a manufacturing property in a, in a, in a sub uh, market of our, of our city, which is only oil and gas. And we have an oil and gas tenant in there. So I, I'm, I'm still bullish long-term on that market. We also need to recognize that, that there are some pressures on different segments of the market, depending on what type of property you have. So while, while there are pros and cons, I, I think even more important than, than trying to differentiate between the pros and cons, it's just having a solid understanding of what the property is, who it caters to, who's going to be the future tenant in there if, if that existing tenant were to leave, and any limitations that you might have. Uh, so a manufacturing property, as an example, if that market is struggling right now, it, there's still tenants that are in the market for that. So, so long as you're buying it at the right price and you have a solid understanding of what the, the remarket re on is when you find a new tenant, there's still a valid business case to be made for it. But if you're buying a building that has functional obsolescence, and I'll use ceiling heights as a good example. If you have a, if you have a building that has 18 foot clear ceiling heights and the market right now is, is demanding 24 28, 30 feet or even higher, then that building that has 18 foot ceiling heights is going to be at a, at a complete disadvantage versus something that's more modern. 
Definitely. No. And, and, and I'd actually like you to elaborate a little bit on the functional obsolescence piece, because that's another important thing you have to consider. So could you elaborate a little bit on what is functional obsolescence and how can investors mitigate that in, in their analysis of investment real estate? So functional obsolescence is, is commonly an, an appraisal term, and it's meant to describe a building which lacks something that a modern building will have. And ceiling heights is the most common example of that, because everyone can appreciate that if a building has less ceiling heights than, than something that's modern, that building with less ceiling heights is going to be less desirable as a result. But there's a, a number of other things that can come into it. The type of construction, uh, the access to the building itself, uh, as you can appreciate, if you have a building that that is designed to have, I call it semi-trucks coming to it, but that building was built 40 years ago and the access for those trucks to get into it is, is less than a modern building, that access is a functional obsolescence in itself. So I've always, I've always looked at industrial real estate as a unique asset class in the fact that uh, two tenants can have completely different requirements for a building. And so it makes having a solid understanding of industrial that much more important. And two examples that I compare it to are the office market and the retail market. So if you take an office building, you put it anywhere in the world, you're going to be able to find office tenants that can use that building. It might not have the amenities that they want, or it might not be a certain class that they want, but any tenant could theoretically occupy out of that office space. And similar to retail, providing the size is right. It might not be an ideal location, might not have the same traffic, but almost any retailer can operate out of a retail building. In industrial, it's completely different. You could have a, a one tenant that requires cranes or they, they need to have a, a, a certain amount of dock loading doors in order to accommodate their, their flow of traffic. Uh, and there's just some buildings that are completely incompatible. So the functional obsolescence is a key one to keep in mind, uh, just to make sure that you don't have a building that's going to uh, constrain future tenants from being, even a build to lease it. Uh, and then you also need to understand if there's any other limitations uh, that could just prohibit tenants from, from being attracted to it in the future. Definitely. No. And, and I mean, in that discussion that you just elaborated, you talked about some of the metrics. Um, are there particular metrics that you need to consider as you look at industrial real estate, maybe number of bay doors or ceiling heights or size of the property? Because once you start getting very large, maybe there's less tenants that fall in line with that. Do, do you have any recommendations in particular for different metrics to consider as you're analyzing these opportunities? A great question. I mean, and that is the basis behind site selection that a, that a big industrial uh, company will go through when they're evaluating what properties could be compatible for them or not. They're going through this exact exercise of identifying uh, buildings that will be of a certain size that they need and in a certain location. And then they'll start going through a checklist uh, to tick off all these boxes that they need. So every company is going to be concerned about ceiling heights. They're going to be concerned about loading. Uh, you might see tenants that only have dock loading and, and you might see tenants that only need grade loading, or there could be a combination of that. So I don't think that there's necessarily a, 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 a an elixir where there's a building that works for everybody because industrial real estate is, is that unique. You need to find a building that is going to be attractive to as many tenants as possible, but also recognize that it's not going to be compatible for everybody. Definitely. No, I think that's phenomenal advice. So one of the things that I've often heard people talk about in particular industrial tenants is the office to warehouse ratio. Can you explain a little bit about that and why it's important to a lot of tenants? Yeah. So I'll, I'll touch on that. And then I'll also talk about uh, the building to uh, site size as well. Uh, sometimes called the site coverage ratio of, of similar to office to building it's building to yard space. So I'll, I'll touch on both of those because those are both important. So the office to warehouse ratio is also again, dependent on the type of, of industry. 
So for a lot of manufacturing tenants, I typically see anywhere from 20 to 30% of the building will need to be allocated specifically as, as office space. And there could be outliers on either end. You might find a company that only needs 5% office and you might find a company that needs uh, 50% office. But on average, most manufacturing tenants are gonna need between 20 and 30% dedicated office space out of the whole whole proportion. Uh, in warehousing, it's usually less. Uh, it's, it's more common to see it in the 10 to 15% range of office space to warehouse. Uh, so again, that takes into account uh, having a solid understanding of, of what the demand is for any type of industrial, uh, because you don't want to get a building that has less office space than what the market requires, because it could require a, subst a substantial build-out cost to increase the office to the market amount. And you don't want to have a building that has too much. Uh, but not only do you have to spend the, the money potentially demolishing it, but there is probably some cost involved with the, the that office space in general. You probably paid a little bit for that office space. So if you're removing it from the building, then you're removing uh, an asset that was in the building. Uh, so office to, to warehouse is important. In manufacturing, uh, the building to site size, the site coverage ratio, that's also a really important one, more so in manufacturing than in warehousing. Uh, but most manufacturing companies need yard space to uh, put supplies, whether it's pipe or any type of material or machinery or equipment, uh, they're typically going to require some, some additional yard space. So you're going to want to make sure that if you're looking at a manufacturing property, that the amount of land that comes with it is comparable with other buildings. Uh, because if you have a property that has too little land, you might make that property unrentable compared to another property that has what the tenant's looking for. Definitely. No, that's, that's some phenomenal advice. So now that we understand a little bit of some of the ratios that, that are important in, in an industrial setting, could you explain a little bit about what role zoning plays in, in determining whether or not, you know, it's worth pursuing an investment opportunity in industrial real estate? Yeah, and that, that's a great point too. So every municipality is going to have a zoning regulation in place, which basically stipulates what businesses can and equally important can't operate out of that particular building. So this is typically the first step that you actually want to do if you're working with a company or considering uh, investing in a property is to, to confirm what the specific uses of, of any individual company that's interested and making sure it's compatible with the zoning regulation for the building itself. Uh, in my market, and, and I've looked at a number of other markets across North America, but I'll just reference mine because it's fairly comparable. Uh, we have four types of industrial zoning. We've got a, a mediums, medium industrial, business industrial, heavy industrial, and light industrial. And in each one of those zoning classifications, we have a permitted and a discretionary use. If the company that's looking to move into that space isn't either a permitted or discretionary use, they're not going to get a business license to operate out of that property. So you can imagine the frustration and the heartache and the potential uh, liability, uh, legal liability involved with having a company try to lease a space only to find out that the municipality isn't going to give them a business license. So the, the first thing that, that I always do when I'm looking at a property is to confirm what the zoning is. Uh, when you become more familiar with it, you just know off the top of your head all the permitted and discretionary uses, uh, but you still need to match that with the business type that's going in there. Uh, so every business is, is either going to fall under a somewhat general uh, industrial category or, or they could be very specific, like an auto mechanic is an example. Uh, but you need to be able to marry those two together. The property has to be zoned appropriately. And then the company has to have a, a, a business classification that fits under that zoning. Uh, but that, that is the most important thing someone can do at the beginning to, to avoid a lot of wasted time and, and effort. 
Definitely. And, and do you recommend, I mean, and, and obviously it's similar, it's different in every single municipality, but from a zoning rezoning standpoint, I'm assuming you've had some experience with, with clients that you've had to rezone property in order to fit their use. Yeah, actually, I just bought a property with uh, with a couple partners uh, a year and a half ago, and we just went through the rezoning process. So we just had that rezoned about uh, four or five months ago now, uh, and it was a six month process. Uh, it was it was not easy. The our city made us do a lot of extra work uh, in it. Uh, we, we knew that when we purchased it, that it had to be rezoned. So we were prepared to go through those motions. Uh, but it is a cumbersome, expensive pro- process, and there's no guarantee that the municipality will even do it. Uh, so if you're working with a company that is looking to get into an industrial property, it's far easier to find them one that's suitable from a zoning compatibility standpoint versus finding one that needs to be rezoned uh, t- to suit their needs because it, it can easily be a six month process to rezone a property. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I mean, my, my broker was in the process of purchasing a, a retail piece of land and then rezone it for a particular use. And it took them 18 months and the determination came back that they couldn't do it because there was too much contention at the local yeah. level. So yeah, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, you, it's really relatively unpredictable. Sometimes if it's, if the zoning uh, process is not super contentious, it can last you maybe the six months or so, but if it gets really contentious, then it could last even longer and potentially not even go through. So. And then awesome. for that 18 months that it would have taken him, I can't even imagine the fees uh, that he would have paid for consulting and lawyers and oh, yeah. just the time and heartache of it. I mean, that, that would have been a painful process. And stress. I mean, it's just a lot that went into it, you know, and it just, and it sucks when you don't get the right determination or the one you want. Right. But yep. um, it's part of the, part of the investment opportunity, I guess. Right. All right. Awesome. So you mentioned at the beginning, at the top of the hour, we talked a little bit about the different subcategories. And one of the ones you referenced, which I think is, is extremely, has, has been a buzzword, is last mile. Uh, could you kind of explain a little bit about what that, what that exactly is? And I guess maybe how you see the future of that progressing in the, in the industrial space? So I see this category as probably one of the biggest opportunities in industrial real estate right now. So last mile isn't actually a new concept. You could even reference it back to last mile of delivering people as an example. So how how do people get from the train stop to their, to their uh, location? Do they take a bus? Are they walking? Uh, That last mile delivery concept has actually been around for a long time, but it's, it's a new concept in the industrial real estate uh, world as it relates to e-commerce and the boom that we've seen in that in the last 20 years. So all these e-commerce companies uh, who are who are racing to have delivery times get get to same day in some cases now, uh, who would have thought that you could order something online and actually have it delivered to you in the same day? Uh, but there's a lot of companies that are that are pushing that right now with Amazon being the main one. But these companies, the the biggest hurdle in their logistics chain, the supply chain, if you will, is they can get a product with the existing infrastructure that's already in place from China that comes in a a cargo container across the ocean. It'll get uh, put into an intermodal yard on the port, put onto a train or to a truck and delivered across the country to a a logistics hub. That infrastructure has been in place for decades. But what isn't in place is how you handle that product either going from the store or, or the warehouse to the customer's house. That's a relatively new transition as people have moved towards e-commerce. Instead of going to a store, picking up something and bringing it home, now the, the delivery model is something gets delivered to your front door. 
So that infrastructure isn't in place. Uh, there's been a big movement for it. I mentioned that million square feet uh, Amazon facility we just had in our market. I, I'm guessing everybody on this call has seen a, a, a big a distribution center pop up uh, in your neighborhood as well. And the last mile is, is a figurative term. It's not actually a mile, but it's just meant to imply how do we get the product from the warehouse or the store to the customer's uh, front door. So we're going to see a lot more of these big logistics centers pop up in urban areas, or at least within close proximity to urban areas. Uh, they'll need to have a great distribution hubs because they'll have a lot of trucks coming in and out. They might have semi-trucks coming and dropping the product off, and then they have delivery vans going out. So they're going to need to have strategic locations where these buildings are, are going to be located close to the customer's house so they can dramatically cut back on the cost it takes to deliver it from that warehouse to the customer's front door. And that, that's, that's the last mile delivery challenge. And that's where we're seeing a huge focus on right now with these e-commerce companies. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and like you were saying with last mile warehouses, the ceiling heights from, and, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like the ceiling heights have continued to increase so they could stack materials on top of each other to kind of limit some of the costs for storing the materials. And therefore they have, you know, they can store more materials in that, in that location. Is that similar to what you've seen, I guess, or. Yeah. So, so when I started in the business in 2005, it was common to see ceiling heights in the 24 to 26 foot uh, range. Uh, and over the last 15 years, that's now escalated where we're seeing 32 to 36 foot clear ceiling heights. Uh, and in some cases, we're actually seeing uh, 40 foot plus. And the, the reason for that is because uh, companies can actually rack a warehouse space. Uh, the higher the ceiling is, the higher they can put their racking. And then they're taking advantage of the cubic footage as opposed to just the square footage. Uh, so if a company can lease the same amount of square footage on their footprint, but have an extra four or six feet to get an extra rack in there. Now they've put that much more storage space in and they're utilizing the cubic footage. Uh, in some markets that are that are really dense, uh, uh, like New York or Chicago, one of these markets where it's really hard getting things in the urban core, we're actually starting to see multi-level warehousing, uh, which is crazy to think of the engineering that has to go behind uh, the, the, the floor capacity on these to, to handle that much weight. Uh, but that goes to show you like how much how valuable this real estate is becoming that engineers are now designing multi-level warehousing spaces, uh, pushing that footprint and the capacity you can put on there as high as possible. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I just recently learned about, which is uh, definitely valuable information to have. So that's awesome. So now that we kind of understand some of these other metrics, can you elaborate a little bit on uh, this is one thing that I know is, is very prevalent right now, in particular in, in all types of commercial real estate is the rising construction costs. Uh, can you kind of elaborate a little bit on what you've been seeing as far as building materials and how that's impacted development of industrial real estate? And along with that, uh, maybe you can, I guess, if, if you could elaborate a little bit on, I guess, where you see that going in the future um, over the next, you know, how does that going to affect the asset prices over the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think every input cost for construction has, has gone up. And, and that's shocking to me. I mean, if you go to go back a year now, when we started entering into this COVID phase, uh, if you would have told me we would have had this type of, of inflation and in construction costs a year ago, I, I would have been very surprised. Uh, but that this is where we are. We've seen increase in, in construction cross, costs across the board. So this that type of inflation is, is 
is going to just raise the price of new construction. Uh, and I think that we will see some some appreciation of values just as a result of that. Uh, but it's it's across the board. Wood wood is really expensive. We typically don't see wood used in, in industrial construction. But if wood is at a demand and other people start uh, looking into either steel or concrete, which increases the demand for that. And then we see a subsequent rise there as well. Uh, so it, it's, it's across the board in all markets. We're seeing that inflationary pressure on prices. That's awesome. Yeah, no. And we had a, a gentleman who's looking to essentially buy a piece of land to de develop a property on it for an industrial use. And um, they're, they're analyzing the different ways to be able to build that facility, whether that's pouring the concrete on site getting the actual walls shipped in from other places or just going with like what you said earlier, where you, you have like a warehouse that you ship in from Russia, from uh, China, you know, and you could just build it right on site, you know, make it a little bit more efficient just for his use. But, yeah, but just, we were, we were talking earlier about uh, what Dr. Lineman said on that, uh, that one call. And he made a great point. Uh, he, he said with, with all this uh, quantitative in, uh money that's being injected to the system right now by the feds uh there's a huge increase in the money supply and he doesn't actually believe that that's going to lead to customer inflation he thinks that's going to lead to asset value inflation uh partly because costs of construction are going to go up uh but also just because the real estate in general he he expects there to be quite a quite an increase in, in asset values so uh all this money supply is going to go somewhere and if the banks are the ones that are facilitating this distribution uh that might go into the hands of of, of developers and construction companies and and we could see continued upward pressure on on inflation awesome yeah so now that we i mean that kind of lends into my next question which was really how do you see the industrial market going to how how is it going to perform in 2021 2022 2023 i mean once we kind of ease our way out of this pandemic situation if you can kind of elaborate a little bit on that yeah so going back to the original comment i i think it's really important to differentiate between the subcategories of industrial uh, because I, I i'd hate to paint the industrial with a broad brush and say all of industrial is is going to overperform other asset classes for the foreseeable future, because I still think that there's a lot of pressure on that subcategory of manufacturing. I, I, I think that that's still going to be a tough asset class going forward. Uh, but if you look at the warehousing side and the e-commerce logistics side, I think that that's going to continue to grow as human tr uh, behaviors transitioning more and more away from that bricks and mortar retail towards sh uh, shop online and have delivered. So I, I think that we will see more uh, companies attracted to that warehouse space, not just for e-commerce, but I, I think all companies uh, are are going to increase their stock supply out of fear of running out of stock. We, we all remember the toilet paper shortage of 2020 uh, when uh, we, we couldn't get toilet paper anywhere. Uh, that wasn't just toilet paper. There's a lot of companies that ran out of stock. Uh, Try buying a bike last year. Uh, it was really difficult to buy a bike or anything home improvement or, or outdoor related. It was very difficult to get that stuff. So I think a lot of companies will, will actually over prepare for that going forward and, and increase their amount of inventory to avoid running out of stock going forward. So I see warehousing continuing to, to grow. I think manufacturing is going to have uh, pressure on it for the foreseeable future. Uh, but if, uh, if there is that return to made in US or made in Canada, uh, that, that could increase that as well. But I think that that one uh, will lag behind what we'll see in warehousing properties. Awesome. Great, great, uh, great insights on that front as well. So 
what what are uh, I guess m- my next question is really related to what what are some of the best resources that do you think that people should reference in order to get a better feel for you know the industrial market or or learn more about industrial real estate in in whole in the whole. I'd probably the, the one that I'd point most people to is, is NAOP. Uh, so it used to stand for the National Association of Industrial and Office Properties, uh, but they got away from that uh, from that name. They kept the acronym of NAOP, but now they're just the Commercial Real Estate Development uh, Association, I believe. Uh, so I've been a member of that for years. Uh, they've got chapters all across uh, North America. Uh, they do a really good job of, of conveying market information and, and supplementing it with, with education as well. Uh, so that, that's a great resource. Uh, a lot of their stuff is free if you don't want to become a member. Uh, I just renewed my membership uh, again uh, for this year. I think it was $700. So it's not a, a big cost. Uh, there's local networking groups and they just, they do a really good job of, of keeping uh, people informed on it. So that'd be the first place that I'd recommend. Awesome. And, and also you, your YouTube channel, I, that's also a great resource as well. I, I'll, I'll vouch for that as well because I've watched a few of his videos and he continually produces great content online. So if you haven't already checked his YouTube video out or YouTube channel out, it's definitely a good resource. Uh, I appreciate that. Oh, I, I found, I found that it's actually difficult getting good quality information on industrial real estate. It's, it's almost like it's been the forgotten asset class for so long. It just quietly works behind the scenes. Whereas office is in, in everybody's face. Like you, you go to New York, you only see the empire state building. You don't see the, the industrial building uh, on the side. You're, you're, we're constantly being inundated with, with office or retail properties. Uh, even when it's bad, you hear of the office apocalypse or the retail apocalypse. Those two asset classes are always in the news, but industrial real estate kind of works quietly behind the scenes. Uh, so as a result of that, there, there just isn't a lot of information, unfortunately. So you, uh, NAOP, I think is a good one. And, and thanks for the shout out on my channel too. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and it's interesting you say that too, because again, obviously warehousing and various other subcategories in industrial real estate have been some of the top performing throughout this entire pandemic. And obviously multifamily has done well as well. And there's a lot of content out there related to multifamily and those uh, retail and office, like you said, but industrial, not so much. So uh, definitely doing a great job on that front. Um, all right. So those are kind of the high level questions that I had for you. What I wanted to do is allow a little bit of time for everyone in the zoom audience and on Facebook to ask their own individual questions. So if you guys, for those of you guys who are on zoom, feel free to type away in the chat box and I'll go ahead and check on Facebook as well to see if anyone has any questions in particular about, uh, that they'd like to ask Chad. Okay, so we have a question on Facebook. Hey, Krista. Uh, she asks, do you have a good way to, uh, of, of getting, and, she, and Krista's actually an agent at our office. Uh, she said, do you have a, a, do you know of a good way to get in front of e-commerce distributors? Just to kind of make your name, yourself known in those, in those, or, or in that arena? Yeah, that, that, that's a tough one because a lot of it is, is, internationally based so that it's not often that you'll find just a small local company that's controlling a lot of that 3pl or logistics standpoint it's usually going to be a big company out of out of a, a larger market that just has regional offices all over uh naop is a good one to talk to they're they're a good group for networking uh and another one that might be of interest is uh icsc so ICSC is uh, one that's more geared specifically to retail. Uh, but as you could appreciate, there's been kind of a blurring of those lines now with e-commerce for a lot of these retailers also needing a distribution arm to get all their goods, uh, whether it's internet-based or whether they're just selling out of their store. 
So those ICSC events are, are really good. Uh, there, there's a few major ones every year, uh, which are very well attended. Uh, and you will see a lot of these uh, uh, e-commerce companies well represented at those. Uh, I, I think networking in general is pretty tough right now with, uh, with the pandemic. So hopefully that clears up so we can all start uh, getting out in person again. But uh, NAOP and ICSC would be the ones that I'd, I'd recommend. Great advice. Awesome. All right. So Samuel Miller. Hey, Samuel. Uh, how does one get into lo the logistics sector and, and so how does one get into logistics sector and invest money in it? So it's, I'm assuming what he's asking is like, how do you, how does one, I mean, I guess, get into investing in the logistics sector, maybe talk a little bit about your experience uh, in, in that area. Yeah. So the first thing I'd recommend is make sure you have a solid understanding of exactly what you're getting into. Uh, and this is one point I wanted to touch on earlier as well Is you, you got to look at real estate investing, uh, specifically industrial real estate. I, I can't think of any other asset class that's, that's like this, but you have to look at real estate uh, for industrial on, on a pendulum. So I think industrial real estate has a potential for huge downside risk, which is the biggest worry for every investor is that you buy a property and then potentially uh, the tenant leaves, you have a hard time backfilling it and you have to take a huge paper loss on that property. So I think you need to be very cognizant of protecting your downside risk in industrial real estate. And the best way to do that is of a full understanding of exactly what you're getting uh, with the property. And then also understanding what the market demand is. Uh, so going back to that analogy of a pendulum, if you're going to have a property, we could potentially have a negative 20% decline. I think you should be at least looking for that for a 20% lift if it were to go the other way. Uh, and industrial real estate offers that. You could have a property that has a 40, 50% decline. If you buy a property that the tenant leaves and you have a hard time refilling it, you could have a huge downside risk. And I think what's too tempting for people is they don't take into account what that potential downside risk is on that negative swing on the pendulum. And they might only look at that property as having a 10% lift. And to me, that just doesn't make sense. If you were gonna only have a 10% lift but a potential 50% downside, that, that, that to me is not a strategic investment. Uh, so I know that's kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, but I, I think the, the most important thing if you are getting into logistics is just make sure that you are protecting that downside so that you don't, you don't get caught with your pants down on it. Uh, and to do that, it's just a solid understanding of what, what an, uh, a warehousing property is uh, how competitive it is with similar types of buildings in your area and making sure that that there is tenant demand for it over and above the tenant that might be there or what the market is for uh, attracting tenants in the future. Uh, so, and that, that just comes from looking at as many properties as you can, uh, analyze what properties are available, look into what's most important, if it's marshalling an area for the tenant, uh, the number of dock doors that it has, if it has cross docking, all the industry lingo that ties in with that type of property, just make sure you have a solid understanding of it so that your downside risk is protected. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm assuming that means primarily like how long is the building going to sit vacant if some, if that, if that, tenant were to leave, for example, or if the, if the tenant were to not be able to pay rent or whatever at that, in that situation. And that, that's a potentially really scary part of industrial real estate is that if you do have a tenant leave, uh, if you have a property that's not compatible with, uh, with the 
tenant demand, you could be faced with a building that's vacant for a long time. Now, the the upside and where you you can protect yourself is that quite often you'll have a, a, a an option to renew period where the tenant's got to give you six months notice uh, if they're planning on not renewing their lease. So that gives you some lead up time to find another tenant. But that's still a moot point if if the building isn't compatible with future tenants. So it, it, industrial real estate is, is a fascinating industry. I've, I've, I've done well by it uh, as a broker and as an investor, uh, but it, there's certainly the potential to have something go wrong if you make one small mistake. That one small mistake can be magnified pretty quickly. Great advice, Ed. That's awesome. All right, so great. I, I'm, I'm sorry if I mis, mis, misspe- misspeak your name. So it's Gray Me. Uh, she actually has a question. It says, in urban areas... In the outer region of Vancouver, BC, industrial prices are exceeding two to 2.5 million an acre. Rents are still at that 10 to $15 per square foot range. Is there an effective limit for what industrial could top out at? That, that's a great question. And I think it's, it's largely economics that's going to answer that question. Uh, so long as a developer feels comfortable that they can uh, make a, an effective return on the property, I think that they'll continue to do it. Uh, if, if, is it I'm guessing it's Graham, and, and you're probably in Vancouver. Uh, you, you would have seen historically low cap rates on everything for the last 20 years. Uh, like multifamily, there's there's some multifamily stuff that sells in like the two percent cap rate in Vancouver. So I, I, you're in a market where I where I think everybody's extrapolating what things look like five years out down the road versus looking at what today's numbers make sense. So I think there's a lot of speculation uh, in markets like that where where the economics might not line up with what reality is. Uh, but I think that Vancouver is going to continue to grow. I think that there's going to be continued demand to get uh, that last mile delivery infrastructure built up. Uh, and I, I think investors and companies and developers are going to have no other choice but to pay those. Uh, but it'll largely be driven by supply and demand uh, in, until the developers and, and the end user refuse to, to pay those astronomical prices. Like that's crazy numbers for me for industrial real estate. Uh, but so long as people are willing to pay it, that's that's what's going to continue driving that uh, that price. Awesome. Thanks for that advice. All right. So Lee. Haley, uh, he's asking, what percent of new construction is speculative versus pre-owned? And I'm, I'm assuming this is probably market-specific as well. Yeah, a g- great question. And you're right. I, I would say that that's market-specific. And, and I, I'd say there's macro and micro uh, factors that go into that. Uh, like right now, uh, in our market anyways, we're seeing, we're seeing pretty little on the speculative side. Uh, industrial real estate, is, it's a long process to do it. So it, it can often be like a two, three year cycle, but before people assemble the land, go through all the drawings and development permits, and then actually go through construction lease up, that, that can easily be a two or three year process. So it's hard to stop a big moving machine like that. Uh, but we did, we did even see some people that had plans in place, put things on hold right now. Uh, so I would say that uh, if I were to look at our market, j- just high level right now, we're probably 10, 15% speculative build uh, with 85, 90% being uh, an end, use, end users already in place. But that can certainly swing. If we see a, a big uptick in the market again, as we come out of COVID here, I wouldn't be surprised if we actually see a lot more speculative build going into the future. Definitely. And I'm, I'm assuming banks have a lot to do that, that as well, of securing financing based on that you know, speculation on whether or not the demand's going to be there once the project's actually complete as well. So yeah, great point. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. So 
next up is actually Senna. So Senna um, was asking, do you think developers will take a hit as inflation continues to rise? Will people turn to cryptocurrency or gold as the Fed continues to print money and our currency loses value in theory? Have, that's a great question. And there's there's a, a lot to unpack there. I, I think on the on the money printing side, I, I'm also concerned about that. I mean, if you look at, at US debt right now, we're approaching $30 trillion in, in debt. The, the fascinating point uh, from my perspective is that money is so cheap right now that uh, the government and banks and us, we can all borrow at really, really cheap rates. Uh, the, the quick uh, anecdote that I had on that, I, I said to someone the other day, if, if Visa gave you a unlimited credit card and you had 0% interest and you never had to pay it back, uh, how much would you spend? And, and I think the answer is you'd spend everything you could if you never had to pay it back and there's no interest on it. Well, I think that that's kind of what the government is, is looking at right now. They're they're printing uh, uh, treasuries at, at 0.2% that, that you can borrow money at right now. On a GDP the size of the US, that interest payment is a sm small amount. So whether they had to print another 2 trillion or 3 trillion or whatever that number uh, is at the end of this, I think that's a very small amount from a GDP standpoint. Uh, where I would be concerned, uh, and it has to happen at some point, is when we see interest rates go up. Uh, I, I think that that's going to be the most concerning. That won't just become a government problem, but companies have all uh, become a lot more debt heavy. Households have all become a lot more debt heavy. So I think that that problem will manifest itself uh, once we see uh, call it a hundred basis point pickup in, in interest rates. When that happens, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the feds are saying now that interest rates are going to be low for a while. Uh, I, I think it'd be detrimental to the whole economy if, if we did see interest rates spike up. Uh, so at some point it'll happen right now, it's probably just kicking the can down the road. Uh, so I, I don't see it being a big problem in today's number. Uh, but that will be a problem at some point that we have to deal with. Uh, cryptocurrency is fascinating to me. Uh, I've, I've bought a little bit of uh, a Bitcoin recently in, uh, uh, in, in a, a gray market, stock market. Uh, I don't know what, what I think of that one. I, I, there's, there's a lot of speculation that Bitcoin could go to 500 grand. Some people are thinking it's a bubble and it could go to five grand. I, I, I have no idea. I, I look at it as a hedge on risk uh, on what that's going, but I, I, I personally just don't know enough about it or have enough confidence in it to think that cryptocurrency is, uh, is going to have much legs in the future. I just don't know. Definitely. And, and I mean, you're investing a lot in what you know, right? Industrial real estate, which seems to be something that you, you have a solid understanding of. So I've got a lot of my eggs in the industrial real estate basket. Well, well I think it was Andrew Carnegie who said, you invest, uh, put your all eggs all in one basket and then just watch that basket. So it's <laughs> like that, that logic. It's like, if you understand something, do put all your eggs in that basket and then watch it carefully. So I've always thought that as, as being in real estate that we almost have like legal insider information where you're, you're the one with the ears on the ground, you have uh, access to information that the public doesn't have just by virtue of, of being tied into a lot of this. So I, I like that quote, quote by Carnegie. I think that's really good. If, uh, if you have all your eggs in your basket and you are watching it closely, which we do just extension of being in this business, it's, it's logical to have it in. It certainly comes with some risk. And there were some sleepless nights last March when the economy was tanking, but uh, I, I've, I'm a long-term investor anyway. So these small dips are, should be irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Definitely. Awesome advice. All right. So Andrew, hey, Andrew, 
He's asking, what is a typical, what are the typical IRRs investors look for in class C small bay multi-tenant assets in major metros? Awesome question. Uh, so Andrew, I, I'd, I'd go back to my original uh, comment about that pendulum. Uh, if you're chasing a, a 10% IRR, you should be prepared that there could be a 10% uh, a downward swing. Uh, and the corollary to that is if you could potentially see a 20% downward swing, you should be pursuing a 20% IRR. Uh, more specifically, I'm typically seeing people just trying to cover a hurdle rate. Uh, so if the hurdle rate's 10%, you're going to want to have something uh, above 10% as your uh, targeted IRR. Uh, I, all bets are off right now with, with this past year on how that's going to impact modeling going forward. Uh, but for myself personally, my hurdle rates in the eight to 10% range on, on what I want to chase, uh, the higher the risk of the property, the higher that IRR should be. So, uh, if uh, like a small bay or a class C building, I'd be chasing a much higher IRR because your downside risk is that much higher. Uh, again, if, if you've got downside risk of 20%, it doesn't make sense to chase an eight or 10% IRR. I think it has to be chasing a higher IRR to offset the risk of potentially going down. Uh, so for class C, I'd say you probably wanna be uh, low, low double digits. Uh, 12 to 15% uh, if you've got risk on it. If you're buying a high quality building, you could probably be in that 10% range. Awesome. Great advice. All right. So anyone else in the Zoom chat have any uh, questions they'd like to ask Chad? I want to be respectful of everyone's time. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like you, you answered a ton of questions today, Chad, and provided an awesome amount of information. So I really thank you for that. I guess I have one final question for you. How exactly can people get in contact with you um, if, if they'd like to, uh, just to kind of learn a little bit more about you and, and what you do? Yeah, I, I'm pretty active on on LinkedIn. Uh, so that's, that's a great one to, to use. Uh, maybe I'll, well, we're connected on, on there anyways, uh, but I'll send you the link again. If someone wants to reach out to me there, uh, I, I'm always happy to, as you can tell, I'm always happy to talk about uh, real estate. So if anyone has any questions, if I can help with anything, uh, feel free to reach out. And I'd love to have a chat. Awesome. And I will, this is, this will be recorded and it's going to be posted on YouTube as well. Uh, so I'll be posting his information along with his YouTube channel on there as well. So if you guys do want to follow what he's doing, he really does provide some awesome information on his YouTube channel. So feel free to subscribe to that. And awesome. Well, thanks, well, thanks Chad. very much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks, Chad. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. See you guys.